0: And, and uh, it, 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 hopefully some of those kinds of programs can be expanded. And people who are interested in more on Brothers on the Rise or these programs, I hope you'll look up their websites, get involved, and can participate more in the dialogue. I really want to thank our guests today, John Gilgoff and Daniel English from Brothers on the Rise. And um, our next program will air the fourth Friday in October. The producers for Education Today are Kevin Cartwright and Jaron Epstein. The board op for today's program is Erica Bridgman. I'm your host, Kitty Kelly Epstein, and we look forward to talking with you again in a couple weeks. Thanks. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover, Open Book. Good afternoon and welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. I'm Amelia Gonzalez, wanting to thank you for helping us during our fun drive that just ended this week very successfully. Again, muchisimas gracias. Today, we're talking about a couple of events that are taking place this upcoming week. In the first segment, we'll be talking with Dr. Shakti Butler about the upcoming first annual symposium on race, followed by a conversation with Doug Harris about his latest film, Basketball in the body. Stay tuned. It's 2008, and do you wonder why we're still in a quandary on how to speak about race? And yet, structural racism impacts and is embedded in all levels of policy, law, institutions, communities, families, as well as language and implicit internalized attitudes. Wanting to address this is my guest, Dr. Shakti Butler. She, along with the World Trust Educational Services and Speak Out, are hosting the first annual symposium on race, titled Facing the Mountains, Breakthroughs to New Racial Landscapes, that will explore the importance of explicitly making race part of the general discourse Dr. Shakti Butler has been working to have these difficult conversations as Executive Director of the World Trust Educational Services and through her groundbreaking documentaries, The Way Home, The Light in the Shadows, and Mirrors of Privilege, Making Whiteness Visible. I want to start with asking about the purpose of this symposium.
1: Well, the purpose of the symposium is threefold, actually. Um, The first part is... There is so much good work that's going on in the Bay Area directed towards building a sustainable world, you know, looking at issues of social justice. And I think rarely, because we're all so busy, do we have the opportunity to come together and build community together and enjoy all the different work that we're doing and the way that we're doing that work. So that's the first reason to build community. The second reason is that um, there is a lot of emphasis right now on dealing with structural racism. You know, that's the racism that's so embedded and encoded into our systems that it doesn't need anyone to personally direct racism towards a person. But its net effect are, you know, inequities in prison systems and educational systems and health care and so on and so forth. That work will consistently be undermined if we don't look at our internalized behaviors. And so part of the, the program is for us to begin to do that work, which is a conversation that can rarely happen in the room across race. So that's the second reason. And the third reason is that we're doing all of this so that we can step into our greatness and have new vision, have breakthroughs around creating a new racial landscape together. So those are the three reasons why we're having this symposium.
0: You have an impressive list of speakers where you're planning to address a lot of the issues that you just mentioned. I wonder if you could start with talking a little bit about how to get from the rhetoric of deconstructing something so daunting as institutionalized racism.
1: I have two very simple words, sharing stories. We need to understand one another's stories. Stories are what we remember about one another. And so we have these amazing people, this daunting list, as you call it. But they're people with their stories who have experience in looking at, you know, grassroots organizing, at environmental justice issues, at, you know, bridging the gaps in education and so on. And they have all been charged with coming in to talk about not only the work that they do, but what's working What are the experiences that they have that let them know that they're doing good work in the world? What are the experiences and the stories that they can share that let us know that it's working? I think it's fine and necessary, of course, to critique what is not working. But how often do we get together to talk about what is working? And that's our approach for the day. What's working? What can we learn? And what's working?
0: Did you have any particular benchmarks
1: or do you feel like it's something very personal? I think it's a both and. One of one of the reasons that we pull together so many amazing people is because they all work on social justice from a different perspective. And not only do we want to hear their stories, but we need to be inspired. I cannot tell you how many times I have talked to my friends and also for myself who work in this field of social justice and I've gone, I'm so tired. Does it really make a difference? And all the times that you want to just go, you know, this is pointless. I should really do something else. However, that's only one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is people's lives are touched every day and that people can get information at the right time that sprouts into a whole new understanding or a whole new consciousness about life, equality and the role that they need to play. You know, we we are living in some very interesting times. I don't need to tell you. We need to pull together. And so the benchmark is, will we build community? Will people be inspired by other people's stories? And will we do the deep internal work that is necessary to heal from this mess called racism? And dealing with that part of building
0: community and, and healing, how are you suggesting that we do that? Well...
1: One of the ways of um, practicing being in community is to be able to come together, to look at the strengths that we do have and the values that we do have. One of our speakers is Roberto Vargas, and I I just love him so because not only is he going to be speaking about what it means to build social justice practices within your family, but he is one who really understands coming from the strengths that we have, as does Yolanda Ronquillo, who talks about, Unidad, what it means to be united, to feel united. And if we can come together in a room and feel united across race and class and, and all of the things that can tear us apart, then that's a good thing because we must include the experience of coming together. It doesn't mean that we're not doing good critical thinking. It simply means that I am going to work better with you if I know you have my back. I'm going to be a partner for you if I understand the work that you're doing. I'm going to be inspired in my own work by being inspired by yours. So this idea of, you know, the good news is something that's superficial and not, you know, and and not so meaningful is, um, I think, a misguided notion. Because really what we're attempting to do is hold the paradox of both good and bad in the world. And that requires some real practice. Are you
0: hoping in in the program that you're planning having some
1: praxis? Yes, absolutely. Not only will we have praxis after the two rounds of presentations, but I want to talk just for a moment about some examples of presentations. We are having, for example, the Organization of Leadership Excellence that does amazing work with African-American youth. And, in fact, World Trust made a short piece for them about the powerful work that they do of having African-American youth um, become empowered and actually make change in their lives. And so they're going to be showing a short film that shows you the hard road that these young people have to walk through in order to get on the other side and become productive members in their families, in their communities, and in the world at large. You know, we will be having um, a look at the Center for Third World Organizing, and the powerful grassroots organizing that they do, there's some really powerful success stories. I want to know, how did they do that? Mm -hmm. What did they do? What have they learned that allowed them to go in and organize and make strategic change around a specific issue? So I feel like the good news really comes from the wins that we have had. Once we understand that we can win, by win I mean that we can make change, we can shift consciousness as well as make good strategic change in the world, that then empowers me to feel hopeful about not only doing the work that I do, but saying, oh, I can call so and so because you know what? They've done something similar. And I want to know what their pitfalls were so that I can avoid them. That's the voice of Dr. Shakti Butler, who's here talking about her work
0: with the World Trust Educational Services, as well as the upcoming first annual symposium on race titled Facing the Mountains, Breakthroughs to New Racial Landscapes, and that's taking place tomorrow, Saturday, at the First Congregational Church in Oakland. For more information, you can go to world-trust.org. On Open Book, I'm Amelia Gonzalez. I wanted you to talk about or describe what the difficult edges are.
1: <laughs> there are so many. <laughs> I think the difficult edges are, I, I, I want to see if I can be succinct about this. The difficult edges are at three different levels of analysis. There are difficult edges related to my personal world and my interpersonal world and what my relationships are like there. There are difficult edges around my uh, cultural world and in my community world. And there are also certainly difficult edges in terms of uh, institutions and policy and law. And let's face it, you know, these three ways of looking at an issue like race, looking at oppression, they fold in on each other. So let's look at the internalized piece. We don't usually go there. It's the messages that we as people of color have internalized about our place in the world that we may not be conscious of or we are conscious of, but they inform our behavior. By the same token, that internalized privilege that white people are taught through no fault of their own, but manifests itself as well in terms of what it means to be good, what it means to be right, what it means to be normal. Those are two sides also of a coin where we need each other. And yet anyone who does work on social justice will tell you that the minute you try to have a conversation in a mixed group about internalized oppression, it's all bad that is a bridge that we must cross. It is a conversation that must happen because I need to learn to be a better listener. I need to be a better analyzer. I need to learn how to be a better friend. I need to learn forgiveness. I need to learn how to have behaviors that are in alignment with my highest values. That work is going to influence every arena that I find myself in. If we were to start at the opposite end and look at strategies and change or structural racism, where do the conversations fall apart? Why is it that people have such a hard time hearing each other's point of view in order to enact a decision? They're all related with one another. And so my hope is that this conference is going to provide lots of opportunities for us to take the good critical look at ourselves as instruments of social change, as well as social change efforts themselves.
0: So you mentioned some of the speakers, Roberto and Yolanda. I wanted you to talk a little bit about who else is
1: going to be talking. Oh, God, the people who are coming are so amazing. I want to talk about Nunu Kidani. Nuna Kidani is um, an Eritrean woman who has been meeting with um, African-Americans and African people in the basement of a church for years. This is aside from her work at Baji, the Bay Area uh, Black Alliance for Just Immigration. And this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. This meeting that she's been having for several years now in the basement of a church has been having Africans and other black people and people of color come together to talk about how they objectify each other, how they don't see each other, they don't understand each other's worlds, And it is out of that conversation that she has been able to infuse her energy into Baji, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, because she has this deep understanding of where we don't connect. So she will be talking about her experiences in the basement of that church um we have Victor Lewis who most people know as the wonderful and amazing uh brother from the color of fear who will be talking about this uh connection in the world of structural racism and internalized oppression and at the same time paying homage to um Ricky Shereva marcusa who was really one of the founders of the the work that we do around social justice uh, pertaining to racism um, in in the country, so he will be talking, and we have John Scott who does just the most impeccable work using theater of the oppressed and so what we're saying is come. Come choose a presentation where you feel like you can lend your experience and then participate in in a presentation where you have a lot to learn. And in this way, we can begin to engage with each other in this dance of learning and telling stories and being in community so that we can keep moving on. We can keep moving forward. For those that might
0: not know, John Scott also worked with you in making whiteness visible. Yes, he did. Right? He
1: did all of the theater work. And he actually. Beautiful. Yeah, he he's amazing. And he did this little cameo shot for people who do know the film of, you know, riding down the freeway and having to slow down because he was in a right. part of the country where, you know, the police are looking for black men driving their cars and, mm-hmm. you know, not doing well by them. I
0: wanted for you to talk about Mirrors of Privilege, Making Whiteness Visible. Do you want to talk about how it was received? Because the last time you were here, it was uh, just barely coming out. Yes. And after seeing it and after having so many people see it, understanding how much it resonated with folks, I wanted... This is also the Bay Area. So I just kind of <laughs> wanted to get your your take on um, how has it been throughout the country or other places that you have shown it. Right. It
1: has been amazing. I mean, you know, you're right. This is the Bay Area. and um, and, and sometimes that can lull us into some false beliefs about who we are as progressive people. Um, But this film has been amazing all across the country because it's white people talking about their experience of living in a racist society. And so I think what they model are two things. One, they represent critical mass. You know, they represent the group of voices of white people who are really trying to understand something that in many instances has become so subtle that people pretend that racism doesn't exist any longer. Um, and, And by the same token, it gives people a chance to look at these folks who are on the screen as teachers, as people that they can follow, people who um, can guide them through their own inquiry about racism, and to be fearless about that. Why? So that they can step into the greatness of who they are. Right. I wanted you to
0: lastly talk about the upcoming film that you will be showing some uh, clips on uh, in the evening, right? Yes yes cracking the codes exploring
1: internalized racism and internalized entitlement yes talk about that well this is a brand new project we've we've only done a few interviews and so you know i figure we have a couple of years before we actually finish it but the idea is to be able to look at how racism is unconscious, how how we internalize messages about our place in the world. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, that's a conversation that has never been able to happen in mixed company because by mixed company, I mean across ethnicities, across race, because there's so much misunderstanding about one another's perspective. So, for example... If an African American person is talking about, you know, some of the issues that we may have in our community around skin color or hair texture or, you know, the, some of the legacies from slavery, then white people may very easily hear that, not understand the historical context and go, well, look, you know, they're messed up. They they have problems within their own community. That's too cut and dried. You know, we're, we, we've got to really move beyond this place where there's a box that people live in. We have a variety of experiences. We need to be able to hear each other's experiences. And then we need to understand how those experiences must be made conscious so that we can be at choice about our behavior. If we don't become a choice about our behavior, then we, you know, we, we cannot make the kind of intelligent, value-driven uh, decisions that we, that we want to make. We can't be in alignment with who we say we want to be. I do have to say that I'm really excited about this first symposium. We plan to do this on an annual basis. That people are showing so much interest in, in coming together and, and looking for a space and a place where we can learn together and grow together and take risks together and utilize the wonderful experiences that we have so that we can really make the world a better place and that we can leave the world a better place for our children and our children's children.
0: You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Shakti Butler, and we've been talking about the upcoming first annual symposium on race titled, Facing the Mountains, Breakthrough to New Racial Landscapes. That's taking place tomorrow, Saturday, October 10th, at the First Congregational Church of Oakland. That's located at 2501 Harrison Street. For more information, you can go to world-trust.org. I've
1: been to hundreds, thousands of basketball camps all around the United States, as a matter of fact. And if you walked in the Armijo Center, you step your foot in there, you're going to see something entirely different. That's what makes it so special.
0: The dollar that we charge for basketball in the barrio is not about the, the free books from Cinco Puntos Press or the ice cream or the t-shirts, the basketballs we give to
1: the kids. The dollar is really about this incredible cross-section of culture that we expose the kids to. Some people say we joke around back at the camp that Basketball in the Barrio is the center of the universe, and everybody wants to come here to share and to learn, regardless of age or your background. You don't have to be a basketball player. You don't have to be a, um, a great coach, an incredible coach, or even a coach at all. You just want to be able to care for the kids and teach them the fundamentals of life, humanity, and basketball.
2: Basketball is secondary here. It's really secondary. They get a chance to, to uh, meet scholars, uh, educators, And this all comes together at the Basketball in the Barrio Camp.
0: You just heard a clip of the film Basketball in the Barrio. That is a film about the role that a basketball camp has played in the barrio of El Segundo in El Paso, Texas. Today I have the pleasure of having the producer of the film here, Doug Harris. Mr. Harris has produced Bounce, the Don Barksdale story, which won the Beacon Award and Tournament of Champions for Fox Sports. His latest film, Basketball in the Barrio, has been selected as one of the featured films being screened at the inaugural 2008 U.S. Sports Film Festival in Philadelphia. Congratulations.
2: Thank you very much, Amelia.
0: Let's talk with you describing El Paso, Texas, the home of basketball in the barrio. For those that might not know it, can you describe the town?
2: Well, El Paso is one of the most enjoyable places that I've been to here in the United States. I, I get the opportunity to travel to El Paso every June during Father's Day weekend for this wonderful camp, Basketball in the Barrio. And the camp is actually a part of our organization's programs for youth throughout the country. And it's conducted each year by our Athletes United for Peace, El Paso chapter, It's just a a very colorful community.
0: And something that was of interest, something that Dave shared with me was the fact that as Impoverished as El Paso is, it has one of the lowest crime rates for such an urban setting, which is interesting when you think about that.
2: Well, you know, I think one of one of the reasons why we have that is because of the people in El Paso, and especially you know their commitment to young people in the different communities. What you have with basketball in the barrio is people coming from not only all parts of El Paso but all parts of the country to come and convene on El Paso every June to work with these wonderful kids with this basketball camp. And and I must say, when we think of basketball camps, we think of the traditional basketball camp where you're doing drills and watching films about basketball all day. You're inundated with basketball. Mm-hmm. But basketball in the barrio is so unique because basketball is just a vehicle to get the kids interested and get them to come through the gym And then what they get after they get in there is just a whole spectrum of other cultural and historical and artistic activities that really engage them. So when you split up the pie, basketball in the barrio, at the basketball in the barrio camp, we only really work with basketball for maybe a quarter of the time. The other three quarters of the time is just, you know, history and culture and and a lot of different activities that the kids really love and enjoy.
0: Well, that was interesting because your film, Basketball in the Barrio, is an hour long. And I thought, how much talking about basketball can can one really take? And it was interesting because it was engaging. You start off with the history of El Paso and Juarez and the role that it played, especially during the, the Mexican Revolution. And also what you say about Basketball in the Barrio being about so much more than just basketball. You have people coming in. You have the mayor coming in from el paso talking about teamwork you had mariachi coming in you have all this cultural work and you even had a uh, dave Zirin, as we were mentioning earlier talking about roberto clemente talking about carlos santana talk about why is that so important to include in a basketball camp
2: well we at athletes united for peace we think that basketball and sports is just a small part of one's life. And that if people aren't, you know, culturally educated and don't know about the history of where they're from and and know about all these great artists and thinkers, that they're not really going to end up being well-rounded people when they become adults. And so we we, we think that it's important and it's also fun. Learning is always fun. And any time you can work with kids in a sports setting when you can really teach them, about different things that they don't know about that can enhance their lives. We just think it's a big plus.
0: Now, this uh, camp started with uh, Russ Bradford, who had a camp at UTEP and realized that it really wasn't addressing the needs of the neighborhood kids. So he started what what we now call Basketball in the Barrio. What can we learn from that story?
2: Well, I think one of the things you can learn from 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 Russ Bradberg in in his story is a strong commitment to those that are less fortunate. You know, a lot of times uh young people uh, parents put aside a budget for youth activities for their kids, and you know, for the kids that are involved in basketball, you know, basketball camps. Some sometimes kids may go to three or four basketball camps each summer. And and this and and then you have situations where there are kids that can't afford camps that cost two and three hundred dollars, you know, a week to go to. And so Russ made the ultimate sacrifice by uh, jumping out of the the, the revenue camps and, and and went down to the barrio and decided to only charge each participant one dollar for this three day camp. And I think that's a true testament to Russ in his uh interest in working with the less fortunate
0: That's the voice of Doug Harris who's a producer and director of historical documentaries and we're talking about his latest film Basketball in the Barrio that's going to be showing this coming Wednesday and I'll give you more information about that in a moment. Doug, I wanted to ask you about the Athletes United for Peace because now my understanding is Basketball in the Barrio is now under the auspices of Athletes United for Peace and I know of this organization from back in the day when I didn't Nicaragua work. You know, you guys used to send delegations down and bring baseball bats and all kinds of stuff and uh, mostly create solidarity among the people. I wanted you to talk about the nature of the work of Athletes United for Peace.
2: Well, Athletes United for Peace, we've been a United Nations NGO uh, since 1998. And well before we became an NGO, we really were an NGO by doing a lot of international work. Not only in Nicaragua, like you mentioned, but also in, in the former Soviet Union and in not, uh, in a lot of other parts of, of, of the world. And when I became involved with Athletes United for Peace back in the early 1990s, that, uh, one of the things that I thought that was important was that the organization addressed some of the domestic issues around peace and communities. And so I was able to, Work with a number of, uh, individuals on establishing some programs that address a a lot of the, you know, gang and violence problems that we've had here in Berkeley, Oakland, and Richmond. This East Bay corridor, as I call it. And so we've been, uh, we've been pretty successful in, in providing a lot of interesting and alternative programs to, to help work with young people. And so, uh, we also, uh, have chapters of our organization in, in New York, where a lot of the United Nations business takes place. And then we have a chapter also in uh, Chicago, Illinois. And as well as our newest chapter in El Paso, Texas.
0: So, what is your goal with this film?
2: Well, the goal with Basketball in the Barrio is to motivate and inspire people around the country to find interesting and creative ways to engage kids. And basketball in the Barrio is just an example that I feel that when someone sees this film, it, it'll motivate them and inspire them to, you know, figure out ways that they can get kids involved with different things as opposed to, you know, the antisocial behavior, the gang activity, and the crime that that are plaguing our country right now And By committed adults, you know, rolling up their sleeves and taking an interest in our kids is is the only way that we're going to kind of turn things.